you for your word, Father. Uh, may it uh, live in us and bear you much fruit to your glory. Amen. Um, am I coming through? Well, good morning, everybody. How's that? That's great. Um, <clears throat> today we're looking at one of Jesus' most famous miracles. So you might like to uh, flip in your um, pew Bible back to Mark chapter 6. Uh, because today we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it's a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Matthew and Mark also record another incident in which Jesus fed 4,000 people. But today we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and these miracles are very well known. But a little bit difficult to interpret. Well, now, uh, this sermon is sermon number four of a ten-part series uh, of uh, sermons looking at miracles in Mark's gospel. And the basic idea with this series is that miracles are actually amazingly articulate forms of communication. Miracles say so much, it's miraculous. However, interpreting them is not always necessarily so straightforward. Adults sometimes assume that this feeding of the 5,000 was meant to be some kind of magic trick. And children are sometimes told that the meaning of the miracle is that we should share. It is undoubtedly good to share. But is that what this miracle is about? Well, let's take a look. We're going to read this together. Today, uh, the story starts in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, page 817. And actually, it starts... At verse 7, verse 7 of chapter 6, calling the twelve to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Well, the significance of this story is extraordinary. It's enormous, the significance, because this is the birth of Christian mission. Um, Jesus is sending out his disciples for the first time in order that they should copy him. Jesus has been doing this stuff already. He's been going about healing the sick, delivering people from unclean spirits, and teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are going to do the same thing. As is often the case, Mark offers us a highly summarized and abbreviated account. From, from Matthew and Luke's account of the same and similar events, we learn that Jesus does indeed send mission teams out, traveling in pairs, charging them to preach the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. Um, the idea of traveling in pairs was not about safety. Um, two people walking down the road were only fractionally safer, if at all, than one person walking down the road. It's not about safety. It's uh, rather about the biblical concept of witness. 
Uh, every testimony should be backed up by two or three witnesses. Jesus is sending them out as witnesses in pairs so as to maximize the potential effectiveness of his workers. And Jesus, we read, he, he gives them detailed instructions on how to do ministry. And two concerns seem to be uppermost in Christ's mind. His first concern, firstly, is that his disciples see for themselves that God will provide for all of their needs as they attend to his work. God's work done God's way in God's time never lacks for God's provision. Disciples, they need to see that and learn that for themselves. Secondly, a second concern is that we can see that Jesus is concerned about their behavior should they experience rejection. For sure, rejection is anticipated, at least in some places. And Jesus' concern is that they just simply go. Um, leave where you're not wanted. No, no, no retribution, no retaliation. Just leave with one prophetic sign. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And that would have meant, as a sign, that would have meant a very great deal to first century Jews who uh, themselves, after traveling through Gentile lands, they, they would carefully remove all traces of defiled Gentile soil or dust from their own feet. The symbolism thus was very powerful. If you're not listening to these men, you're not listening to God. We also see that Jesus gave his disciples authority over unclean spirits and authority to heal every disease and sickness. Proclamation and declaration go hand in hand again and again in the Old Testament. It is the standard formula seen in the ministry of all of the Old Testament prophets. The demonstrations, healing and deliverance miracles, they're offered as evidence that they are a witness in themselves that the proclamation is true. The kingdom of God has come near. Uh, they're a witness to the proclamation being true. They are testimony as to the nature of that kingdom. We are proclaiming to you a king who delivers us from sin, death, and judgment. A king who saves us from every evil. A king who cares and has compassion and saves us from every power and authority that destroys us, that's bigger than us, over which we exercise no control. So they're their evidence, their testimony, but more than that, the, the, the healings and deliverance miracles we should see, they are more than simply signs meant to persuade a skeptical audience because they are manifestations of the kingdom itself. You see, actually, the presence of sickness and the, the presence of the demonized, they are, they are, they are an articulate witness to the notion that God does not reign. And you come in here talking about Jesus and how, how, the, kingdom, how the kingdom of God is drawn near and, and God reigns. Well, no, actually, you know, my child is sick. Or, or this is a heavily dem demonized place. What you're saying can't be true. Um, so sickness and demonization are powerful forces in opposition to the message. And the disciples need to see that with Jesus' command, they have the authority and the power to overcome every force that's in opposition 
to kingdom, to kingdom proclamation. Here is the lesson. If Jesus gives you a command, you have the power and authority to overcome all opposition to that command. His command is his enabling. His call is his enabling. The story actually jumps and then continues in verse 30. The apostles um, gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Well, it, it's time to rest. Uh, these guys, they've just come back from their first ever missionary trip, and, and they're, they're exhausted. Mission, ministry, uh, preaching, praying, it, it's exhausting stuff. You're giving out, you're giving out. They're exhausted. Uh, but it's time to rest. It's time to spend time with Jesus. But there's a hiccup. Verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Well, the, the team is tired. I mean, they were tired before they got into the boat. And you know what? Sailing is tiring. You know, there's anchors and winches and lines and sheets and sails. It's, it's really hard work. And you know what? I'm a really lousy sailor. And I'm a really lousy sailor, not because I get seasick, but rather because the motion of the boat inevitably puts me sound to sleep. I, I'm like a baby in a car seat. Boats put me to sleep. They're, they're really tiring things. There's the hot sun and so on and so forth. Um, and, and look, they haven't even made much headway from a sailor's perspective. This is, this is appalling. People on foot have made the same trip in less time. Man, that's frustrating. And what's the point of boat if you can't outrun folk? Um, furthermore, Jesus has been frustrated in terms of his primary objective, which was to withdraw from the crowds in order to have time for rest and prayer. Man, that's frustrating. And now you've got this mission team led by Jesus, and um, they're, they're exhausted, and they haven't even had something to eat, and they're tired, and they're hungry, and they've experienced multiple frustrations, and they've come to a place where most people are, are running pretty low now on self-control. You know, you're running pretty low on self-control, and your facade is likely to crack. And then people will see what you really like. Um, so, so let's read from verse 34. How will Jesus react? Well, this is what we read. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had contempt for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things, saying, Oh, for goodness sake, get a life, you losers. Do I have to do everything for you? Pull yourselves together and take some responsibility for your own welfare for once in your lives. Oh, sorry, is that what it says in your Bible? Maybe I'm just misreading it. Um, but, but it's fascinating, really, isn't it? It's fascinating that what I've just said is what doesn't happen. Um, you see, when a human being is faced with another human being, 
in need, we only have two choices. <laughs> we have a choice for compassion and a choice for contempt. Compassion, contempt, there are only two choices. Um, and when human beings are looking after other human beings all the time, you know, and, and many of you do this, um, when a human being is charged with caring for other human beings all day long, uh, nurses, doctors, school teachers, nursing home staff, emergency relief and community aid and development workers, parents, Christians, uh, what can happen is, is that they, they get tired and frustrated, and the result is often compassion fatigue, which manifests itself quickly as contempt. If uh, you work, for example, in a hospital, uh, you may take for granted expressions of contempt from your workmates um, as they deal with their compassion fatigue and their failure to be able to rustle up yet more compassion for the people that they have responsibility for comparing, uh, for, for caring with, compassion fatigue. When, whenever I am faced with a human being in need, particularly if it's a need perhaps that I feel powerless to meet or I, I'm overwhelmed by, I, 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 need, I know I need to watch myself care, carefully. Um, if I feel contempt for them, and in truth that is an emotion I am familiar with, if I feel contempt for them, then that's, that's telling me something important. It's, it's telling me that I may need to rest. It is certainly telling me it's time to check in with Jesus. And one of the things that it's telling me is that it is not acceptable to me to be needy in the way that they are needy. The way that I'm needy, that's acceptable, but not the way they're needy. And usually Jesus has one or two things to say to me about that. Um, because, boy, I love this Jesus. I mean, look at him. Let's, let's listen and hear as to what really happened on, on that beach. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. M miraculously, amazingly, indescribably, uncontainably, amazingly, Jesus does not suffer from contempt. Jesus does not suffer from compassion fatigue. He's inexhaustibly compassionate. And what does a shepherd do? Well, what do lost sheep need? Lost sheep needs to hear Jesus' teaching. And what happens when sheep hear Jesus' teaching? That they are fed. Verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Well, the disciples interrupt Jesus as he is teaching to point out that actually, you know, they're, they're needy, they're, they're, they're hungry, they're tired, and, and there's a whole bunch of people and they're really hungry as well. Maybe if they get fed, we can get fed. Um, 
And Jesus seems to be uninterested or unaware of that need. And so their prayer to Jesus basically has been something like this. Dear Jesus, please reject the people who have sought you out so that they can take control of their own lives and take some responsibility for their own needs. And, and th- that's, that's what happens actually when you're tired and frustrated. And you should try and put a brave face on it, but the contempt you feel for the people that God has called you to serve, it starts leaking out. And these disciples, they're contemptuous. It's hidden, but not well enough. Jesus replies, verse 37, you give them something to eat. Jesus allows the observation, yeah, they're hungry. But he rejects their solution to send the people away. And Christ's solution is to invite his disciples into his ministry. He will attend to the crowd's spiritual need, giving them spiritual food, teaching them. His disciples are are to attend to their physical needs, giving them physical food. Both needs are incredibly important. So they receive a command. You give them something to eat. Will Will they remember the lesson they ought to have just learnt? The lesson, do you remember what the lesson was? When Jesus gives you a command... You have the power and authority to overcome opposition. His command is his enabling. Jesus won't have commanded them to give them something to eat if they're not able to fulfill that ministry command. They answer him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we we to go and spend that much on bread to give give it to them to eat? No, the disciples have not left, they've not learned the lesson. Um, interestingly, they, they focus on the cost of ministry. This, this cost is too high. And we note that their reply is not, we don't have the money. That, that's not what they said. What they said was, you want us to go and blow that kind of money on this crowd? I mean, needy people is one thing, but money is another. Let's get our priorities straight. And I'm sure that they didn't have the money, but that's not their point. Their contempt for Christ's idea is, again, hidden, but not well enough. Even in the face of contempt, though, Jesus is still compassionate. How many many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Well, uh, let's notice that Jesus has not been put off in his direction to share ministry. That was, that was his solution. 
He's made it happen. He works this out with his disciples. They share in what he's doing. And under Christ's direction, the disciples surrender into Jesus' hands everything they have. And, And that is just a wonderful first step of obedience. They surrender what they have to Jesus, which is all he ever asks for. Everything. Jesus gives thanks for the food. Then Jesus gave the bread to the disciples and they distributed that. Jesus distributed the fish. 5,000 families ate as much as they could, the number of people being represented by Mark as being 5,000 husbands or 5,000 men. In other words, 5,000 heads of households. In addition to all of this, 12 baskets of leftovers were collected. That's one for each of the disciples. They gave all that they had and they got more, got back a lot more than they'd, ha- than they'd given. Uh, we notice that the actual miracle itself is hidden from view. There's no description of it. What did it look like? You know, was, was there suddenly a pile of bread and fish? Uh, um, you know, did, did the disciples, you know, watch it multiply in their hand? We've got no idea. Um, it's hidden from us. It's not Mark's interest. I imagine that actually it was hidden from the crowd. I imagine the crowd had no idea what was going on. The disciples, uh, we do find out they've been very slow to actually for the penny to drop. What they have is, you know, that they, they, they see the people fed and they see these baskets. The penny's dropping. You can hear it, but it hasn't clicked yet. Um, what did it look like? We don't know. Mark hides that from view. He's not interested in the anatomy of a miracle, he's interested in telling us what it means. What does the miracle communicate? Well, what does it mean? What does it tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that he's God. Because the special thing about the multiplication of of food miracles is that they are creation miracles. A, A few kilograms of bread and fish becomes hundreds or even thousands of kilograms of bread and fish. Um, For us as Westerners, we might feel quite offended by this miracle. Hey, the laws of nature are being broken here. Matter can't come from nowhere. Well, actually it can, as in the Big Bang. Um, You know, we're in, according to the experts, a whole bunch of something came into existence where previously there'd been nothing. So you can get something from nothing. Um, scientifically, the multiplication of fish and bread can happen. Scientifically, it would just would have required a lot of energy in the order of 90,000 trillion kilojoules of energy per kilogram of fish and bread if I am working out E equals MC squared correctly. Uh, that's, ju- that's just a lot of energy, but it's possible. Theologically, it's also possible as long as the God who was there at the beginning is there now also on the shores of Lake Galilee. Because God created everything from nothing. That's what this miracle is telling us about Jesus. God makes something from nothing. Jesus made something from nothing. Jesus is God. It's actually that simple. Um... What else does this um, miracle tell us about Jesus? Well, Jesus is a king. As a king, Jesus is inexhaustibly compassionate towards those who seek him and in seeking him, want him to meet their needs. 
I mean, isn't that fantastic good news? I mean, it means, you know, that, that for us, you know, tonight when we get out our Bibles and we kneel at our beds and we, we pray and we give, give Jesus the, the same list of whiny prayers that we offered last night um, uh, and the night before that, um, he's inexhaustibly compassionate. Um, he's inexhaustibly compassionate to those who seek him. He wants to meet their every need. Jesus wants to meet your every need. Um, and the kingdom of God is a place where all of our needs are met. Um, <clears throat> that's not to suggest that all of our desires are affirmed, but rather, as we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our hearts and satisfies us with good things. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is a place of compassionate care, that's why Christ's disciples heal the sick, cast out demons, feed the hungry, because they must learn that the kingdom is a place of compassionate care. And the church, likewise, as one manifestation of the kingdom, not the only manifestation, but the church, as one manifestation of the kingdom, must be a place of compassionate care. And Jesus, in addition to showing us that he is God, uh, that he is king, that he is the good shepherd. J Jesus is showing us what it means to be human. Um, that, that what it means to be human is to respond with compassion to another human being in need. That's what it means to be human. Not with contempt. You may have noticed, by the way, uh, that earlier we jumped over verses 14 to 29. Um, what happens in those verses is that actually we hear about another dinner party thrown by King Herod for his birthday. And uh, yes, uh, you're right. This is another Markan intercalation. I spoke about that thing last week wherein Mark sandwiches a second story in between story, the beginning of story one and the end of story one. We get story two. It's another Markan intercalation. I'm not going to touch on verses 14 to 29 today. That's a sermon in itself. But you may like to go home and do what Mark is inviting you to do, which is to compare and contrast a dinner party in the kingdom of God with a dinner party in the kingdom of Herod. I know which one I'd rather attend. Back to Jesus' dinner party. Um, in the kingdom of God, the laws of nature do not reign. Not because they're irrelevant, but rather because the author to the Lord's, uh, laws of nature, he reigns and he is present in the same way, in the kingdom of God, the laws of economics do not reign. Economists, please forget everything that you've learnt. None of us has the right or authority to tell Jesus what he or we can or cannot afford. In contrast, Jesus does have the right and authority to tell us what we can and cannot afford. And... Um, I have many of my own stories of God's miraculous provision in my own life. Some of these stories I've talked in, in sermons before, so I won't, I won't give any now. Um, um, perhaps you have your own stories. Perhaps we can hear about them in the testimony section. That's coming after the sermon. 
Um, I know that many of you do have stories of God's miraculous provision in your lives. That's because Jesus keeps on working the same way with all of his disciples. All of us, we all need to learn that God's work done God's way in God's timing never fails to have God's provision. You can trust him to provide for all of your needs, especially as you spend your last dollar serving him. Because that's the flip side. Don't expect to experience that if you don't surrender everything you have into Jesus' hands. But the fundamental lesson of this miracle is that if Jesus gives you a command, you have the power and authority to overcome opposition. His call is his enabling. And you work out the details of your call in conversation with him as you take that first step or two of obedience. Um, If you plan to be here next week, I ask you to keep that in mind because uh, what we're going to see is the disciples again being tested to see if they've learned that lesson. And, spoiler alert, sorry, actually they don't. The lesson is, if Jesus gives you a command, you have the power and the authority to overcome opposition. His call is his enabling. This miracle then, in the context of Mark's gospel, is found in a series of events wherein Jesus is teaching his disciples to copy him. That is precisely what we, Christians, are supposed to be doing individually, day by day, and collectively as a church. This miracle then is therefore ultimately, it's actually, it's not about miracles. This miracle is about knowing who Jesus is, that that he is Lord and that he loves us. It's about knowing what his kingdom is like, a place of care and compassionate response to human need. It's about knowing what it is to be a human being. It's to respond with compassion, not with contempt. It's, it's about knowing that, that we have the power and the authority to overcome opposition to any force or structure that stands in opposition to the kingdom. Sickness, demonic strongholds, corporate sin, poverty. We have the power and authority to overcome all opposition to the reign of Christ. This miracle is about enjoying the funny irony of kingdom economics. It'll cost us everything we have and give us infinitely more than we started with. And it's about knowing that God's work, done God's way, in God's time, never lacks for God's provision. And so it's all about, it's actually all about Psalm 23. It's all about knowing that Jesus is our shepherd, about knowing the Jesus that is our shepherd. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord be with you.